Okay, friends, it's true, is it not, that there are a number of ways in which the society around us has affected the modern church. Isn't that right? There's a number of ways in which the culture that we live in has influenced uh, the people of God. I think one of the most obvious examples is, is in the individualism of the day. I'm sure you see what I, uh, what I, what I mean. The culture outside is all about the self, isn't it? It's all about asserting the rights of the individual up and over the rights of the community or even the rights of the family. It's all about the self, isn't it? It's about kind of self-centeredness, our society, isn't it? It's about self-empowerment. Uh, self-sufficiency. Uh, and, and, and you see, I'm sure, what has happened. That that prevailing view of the culture feeds into the culture of the church. And you see how we can end up thinking. We can think, well, we can only in terms of ourselves. Uh, how is my walk with God? What is the church doing for me? How is my prayer life going? It's all very individualistic. Well, let's begin tonight with a truth that stands in direct opposition to that view. And it's this. In our salvation, friends, we have not just been called by God. In our salvation, we have been called by God to be part of his community. Isn't that right? That the church is all important to God. It's actually in the community, the church, that God speaks most clearly. It's in the community, in the church, that God works most powerfully. Do you know what? The church is actually the gift that the Father has given to the Son. The one that the Son will perfect and give back to the Father. Do you see? The church, the community of the people of God. That is what is important to our God. And this evening, as we continue our sermon series in First Samuel, it's that subject. It is to the church that we turn. Now friends, I want us this evening to notice... One or two uh, things from this portion of scripture that we've read. And the first is this. We see here corruption at the, in the church or corruption at the house of God. Corruption at the house of God. So what do, what do, we, what do I mean by that? Well, in the previous section of the book, we've been focusing, if you've been here over the last few, we've been focusing on Elkanah's family. Isn't that right? In the last couple of chapters, the focus has been on Hannah and Samuel and so on. Now you can see, can't you, that as we go into this new section, it's almost like the camera moves from one family to the next. You see, moves from Elkanah, and now the focus is on Eli, his family, and I think most particularly on his two sons, Hophni and, and Phineas. Now, I think you can tell, even by the way that these two blokes are introduced to us, you can tell that things are not going great with them, can't you? You can tell that they're not perhaps setting a very godly example. Do you see this? The way they're introduced in verse 12. <laughs> it's not a great introduction, is it? These were worthless men. Now that's, that's bad enough. But it gets even more ominous. Remember, they are servant 
<laughs> the worship of God. Look how it goes on. They did not know worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. But don't give up there. Keep going in the text with me. Because no sooner are they given that, that scathing assessment than kind of evidence of their worthlessness kind of bubbles up to the surface. But I'm, it's not actually all that straightforward in the way that it's written. So let me try and explain it as best I can. It was legitimate for priests at the time to get a share of the sacrifice. Now, you've got to understand that from Leviticus, it was legitimate. So if you, let's say you were a part of the ancient people of Israel, okay, use your imagination for that, and you bring an animal uh, up to Shiloh, to the temple, and you're gonna, this is gonna be dedicated to God, this is gonna be sacrificed. It was legitimate to give, I think it was the right thigh, and the breast of the animal, that was to be given over to the priest. That was what God wanted. This was Leviticus. This is real. But you see the problem. Hophni and Phineas, right thigh and breast of the animal, that's not enough. And so do you see what happens in verse 13? They come along with their three-pronged fork, and they're tucking in. And they're taking more than what God had set aside for them. But it gets worse because did you notice what part of the animal they take? What are they wanting? They want the fatty portions. Now what's the problem with that? That was the part of the animal that God had said must be dedicated to him. And you see, they don't care. They're taking that. They're taking even God's portion of this animal. And should anyone question it? Anyone even bring it up? What what do they do? Did you see? They threaten violence. They're going to have these guys. If there's any question at all about this. Aren't you with me? This, This is, remember what we're saying. These are priests. Like these are, these are the church leaders doing this. But I have to say this to you gets worse. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. We're told in verse 22 that to that sort of abuse of power, would you call it that? Abuse of position. Do you see what they add? They add sexual immorality. Like everyone in that community knew. All of the people of Israel, they knew one thing. They knew that those two men were sleeping with the women who are doing some of the temple chores at the time. Aren't you with me when I say, come on, that's shocking, isn't it? Like church leaders and and, and men involved, men chosen to, to conduct the worship of God doing this sort of stuff. But let me make a bold statement just now, friends. I reckon tonight I know what you're thinking. I reckon this evening I can read your mind. What do you think when we talk about this? When we talk about leaders in the worship of God involved in sexual immorality, what do you think when you hear about corruption and greed in the worship of God? What do you think? Don't you think this could be today? Don't you think this is about as contemporary a problem and as contemporary as a scene as we could possibly imagine? This corruption amongst the leaders in the worship of God. Isn't that right? 
I mean, if you are thinking that, surely you see that it's right. I mean, if you were to ask your friends tomorrow, your unbelieving friends, if you said, what do you think when I say to you, evangelical church leader? What are your friends going to say? They're going to say, greed. Is that what they're going to think? Oh, these men who, who use their position to, to acquire material gain, they're going to say greed. What else are they going to say? They're going to say, evangelical church leader, immorality. I mean, it's, aren't those the guys that are always have that public scandal about their extramarital affairs? Do you see, like Hophni and Phineas? That's today, that's now, that's us, isn't it? So how do we, how do you respond? Well, I wonder this. I wonder if you noticed in the portion of scripture, the pop-up phrase that God gives you a number of times. Did you notice that there's this phrase that God throws at us time and time and time again, this idea that exists all the way through this portion of Scripture. You see it in verse 11, you see it in verse 18, you see it in verse 26. We're reminded about who? Samuel. Yes. We're reminded about this, the other youngster who's involved in the temple service. And do you see what we're told about, about Samuel? It is repeated... It is emphasized that when all of the sexual immorality is going on, what's Samuel doing? Humbly, quietly, what's he doing? He is ministering to the Lord. And then look at verse 26. This will, here's a test for you. Where, where else in the Bible do you hear verse 26? Look, all the immorality, the greed is going on. What about Samuel? He continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord. We've heard this. Who else has that said of? It's said of Jesus, isn't it? In Luke chapter 2. Do you see the point? Even at Shiloh, even at Shiloh, even in amongst all of that immorality, what's happening? God is still at work. Even when there is corruption in his church, even when there is immorality in the worship, what's happening? God is still there. He's still building up quietly, faithfully, but building up these faithful Christ-like leaders. And I think that should encourage us this evening. Because we can get genuinely very, very despondent of the state of the church. Isn't that right? That we see the corruption and we see the sexual immorality and we see all the public scandals that, that hit the evangelical church. And what's the temptation, friends? The temptation is to say, forget the church. Oh, come on, forget the church. If it's going to be like that, I'm staying at home. That's the temptation. The temptation is to say, I am going to individualize the Christian faith is going to be about me and about God. And do you see why it mustn't be like that from First Samuel 2? We mustn't give up on the church because God doesn't give up on the church. And I think we should take heart from the fact that it wasn't just Hophni and Phinehas at Shiloh. Samuel was at Shiloh. What does that mean? It means that our God, even here even in all the corruption, our God was present and our gracious God was still in action amongst his people. So we see corruption, corruption in the house of God. A second thing that we must note here is discipline at the house of God. Discipline at the house of God. Years ago, 
uh, when I uh, first became a Christian, this book that we're dealing with was one of the first books that uh, I studied. So I became a Christian and uh, studied, I don't know, Daniel, I think it was, and then moved into First Samuel. And I'll tell you this, as a young Christian, and they got to this portion of Scripture, I was left so confused and bamboozled by this portion of scripture. And I wonder if you see why. I was reading it wrong, or so wrong. I was looking at it like this, that Hophni and Phinehas were bad, but God punishes Eli. And that's how I was understanding it. Like Hophni and Phinehas, they're the guys who are doing the sexual immorality. They're the, they're the guys who are being greedy. And yet God pours out his wrath on Eli. And I was reading it like that. And I was thinking, that doesn't seem, this, this is a strange God. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair to me. Now, hopefully you see that that is not what happens in this portion of scripture. Because did you see what happens in verse 27? Suddenly this kind of mystery man appears in verse 27, this unnamed prophet God, and he comes to Eli, and he's got a message from God for Eli. Now look at the content of the message in verse 29. This is the key to it. Verse 29, what does God say? He says, Eli, why do you, you, why do you scorn my sacrifices? Now do do you see what's happening there? It's not the case that Eli was innocent. Eli's guilty. Do you understand that? Like Eli is tolerating. Eli knows about all of this abuse. He knows about the sexual immorality. He knows about the greed. He knows about it all. He's just turning a blind eye. He's, he's guilty. And I think when we understand that, it kind of makes sense of the judgment here from God. Did you know, did you see the content of the judgment? Do you see what God does here? What he does, he takes temple service away from the line of Eli. A terrible thing. Then he says that all of Eli's descendants, they will all be killed bar one man. And then he says that the proof, the sign that all of that will be fulfilled. Do you see what it is, parents? Do you see what it is? Eli will witness the death of his two sons on the very same day. Isn't that, come on, isn't that some judgment? So come on, what, what do we, what do we learn? What do we learn? And he, well, surely there is a lesson there for the parents and the grandparents of London City Presbyterian Church. Because, do this, look again at verse 29. Look again at verse 29. What exactly is it that God accuses Eli of here? What's the content of it? Do you see? He accuses him of honoring his sons over and above the honor of God. Do you see that that is the breaking of the first commandment, friends? Do you? Honoring his sons. Like, do you understand what's happening? Eli is seeing all that's going on. He sees all of these perversions. And what does he think? These are my boys. These are my, these are my kids. I, I love these. I love Hophni. I love Phineas. And so what does Eli do? He just, he, he just, he just turns a blind eye to what's happening. And, and I'm saying to you, friends, parents, grandparents here, isn't that a temptation for us? Because we love our children. It's the obvious thing to say, but it's true. We love our kids. 
we love our grandkids. But do you know what we also love? Easy life. Like we, we loathe that idea of, of rebuking our children. We loathe that idea of, of, of making their lives a little bit harder. We love that easy life. So what do we do when we see them stray a little bit? Very often we do the same as Eli. And we turn a, a blind eye to that. We look, the, we look the other way. We choose the easy option. Here's the problem with that. What does God want here and throughout Scripture? He wants parents not just to teach their kids, he wants parents to discipline their kids. That if we see our children bring dishonor to our God, if we see children bring dishonor to his church, we're not supposed to do what Eli does here. We're not supposed to just have this really quite half-hearted, gentle word in his children's ear. Friends, as Christian parents, we're supposed to try try to correct our children or grandkids and to guide them back onto a godly path. But if there is a lesson for parents, there is also, there has to be a lesson for every single one of us in here. And let, me, let me phrase it by way of a question. I'll pose a question to you. When, you, when Adrian read this portion of scripture, did you see... What is the one great fundamental mistake that Eli makes? Do you see what it is? Now remember who Eli is. Eli is the main man. Like he's, he's, he's the judge of Israel at this point. He is, he's the guy who calls all of the shots in the temple. He's the guy who was, what should he have done that he did not do here? Do you see it? He should have booted Hophni and Phinehas out of temple service. Isn't that right? He should have removed those men from the fellowship of the people of God. Do you see the lesson for us in here? God expects discipline in his house. Eli, he doesn't boot them out and he is judged for this. God expects discipline in his house. So let me say this, if you are a member of London City Presbyterian Church, you should expect active discipline in our congregation. Like if you, or let's say it's me, if we are living in a way that is bringing great dishonor to God, and if we're, we're, if we're living in a way that is bringing public shame to the church and even to this congregation, you should expect and I should expect that the elders of this church do something about that. And they don't do that because it makes them feel strong and big and powerful. Why should we expect discipline in here? Because this is God's house. You are God's house. This is where God dwells. And this is God's honor that's at stake. So we see corruption, but we see discipline, the need for discipline in the house of God. And then the last thing that we see here is perfection in the house of God. Perfection in the house of God. I was, (laughs) a couple of hours ago, I was in the garden um, at home and I was just praying and I was going over the sermon 
in my mind. And then, ah, it was lovely. The sun was out. It was beautiful. And then all of a sudden, when I was going through the sermon in my mind, all of a sudden, it just changed, you know. The clouds came over and it was so dark, so dark, and started to pour. And as I went inside, I thought, how apt. Because really, of all the portions of Scripture that we have studied as a congregation recently, this is a dark portion of Scripture, don't you think? I mean, just the level of immorality and debauchery in God's house. And then the judgment, the pronouncing of judgment by God, that terrible judgment, it's dark. But I wonder if you see the lighthouse... Like, I wonder if you see what is this uh, dazzling, radiant beam of gospel light that shines out in the storm. Do you see it? Look at it in verse 35. It's beautiful. It is wonderful. Look at it. Verse 35. You're in amongst all of this darkness. And God says, he's going to raise up for himself. Look at the words. A faithful priest. Now look at how he continues. What will the priest do? He shall do according to what is in the heart and mind of God. Now, I think it's important that we understand that in the first instance there, God is speaking of Zadok the priest. You've heard of Zadok the priest. That's who's in focus there. What's going to happen as we go on in scripture is that these promises, prophecies of God are all going to come true. That the line will be taken away from Eli. That all of his descendants will be killed bar one man called Abiathar. And Abiathar will be replaced by Zadok. Zadok the priest. This man who will be a faithful priest. He will serve, listen, before the anointed of God, King David. You got it? In the foreground, who do we have? It is Zadok. But our understanding of this portion of scripture doesn't stop there, does it? In line with the Christian church throughout the generations, we look at that and we see a greater meaning. Because what is it that God would later do, friends? He would send into the world his faithful priest. And this would be a faithful priest that would act perfectly in accordance with the heart and the mind of God. Isn't that right? And what would he do, this priest? He would offer up the ultimate sacrifice for sin at Calvary Hill. Isn't that right? And then he would go on to become the great high priest, interceding for his people. Where? Where? Now, as I speak to you interceding for his people even in the temple of God in glory above. Do you see it? Just as Hannah did in the previous section, scripture again speaks of the coming of the Christ. Who is the faithful priest? Who is he? He is our Savior and our Lord Jesus of Nazareth. But I want to end by just pointing you just now to what God promises to do through the faithful priest. Do you see it? It is still in verse 35. Have a look. What does he promise to build through the faithful priest? He promises to build something. He promises to build a sure house. A sure house. You see what he's talking about? Do you see what's in view? 
This is your God here in 1 Samuel promising to build and establish a Christian community. This is a promise to establish his church. This is divine determination that you've got in front of you here. It's the same as Christ, is it not, in the New Testament. I will build my church. Not I might, not I maybe will get around to it. I will build my church, my Christian community. And I think we, in light of that, friends, we should recapture in here a sense of the value and the importance of the Christian community. Do you understand what has happened? Before you were born, before this earth came into existence, in what was called the covenant of redemption, the three persons of the Trinity, they decreed not just to save you from their sin, from your sin. What did they decree? They decreed to establish a community, a church, a place where Almighty God would dwell, dwell with intimacy, dwell with care, dwell with love. And yes, I know it's corrupt. Man, it is corrupt and it is full of sinful men and full of simple, uh, sinful women. But what did we see this morning? One day, it won't be like that. And one day, we as a community are going to enter into eternity. And what's going to happen? Think about Zadok. Yeah, this sure house, we are going to serve forever the anointed of God. And I think until that day comes, you and I should cherish the church. You've got to understand, you were not saved into isolation. You were saved to become part of God's community. Saved to become part of the sure house. I think when we see that, even tonight, we can praise God. Like we can praise God for this beam of gospel light. We can praise him for the work of Jesus. But can't we tonight, as the people of God, can't we praise him for his church, for this Christian community? May it be that you and I in here at London City Presbyterian, that we value more than anything else in our lives, the body of 